1: Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Sue. She's a caretaker and she had cancer. Let's talk about it. Well, I'm excited because I feel like this conversation uh, was is a long time coming. Uh, we, Sue, we met. Uh, refresh my memory because we've we've traveled around so much and we've been to BC a number of times. But I am I'm positive we met in BC. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Where, oh was it in Edmonton? Toronto. Was
0: the first time you and I met, Sue, first. Yeah. When we went to the. Uh, Which
3: conference was that? Whoa, what was it for? Again, <laughs> I forget. Uh,
2: <laughs> can, it was CanNet. CanNet. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. It was at the,
3: the uh, Lightbox Theater. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, uh, right. That was the first time we met. But then we met again a separate time at another conference where the three of us were there. And me, Taylor, and Brian. Me and Brian were like, "You got to meet Sue." <laughs> and you were like, "You were hanging out and having a coffee or something, like in between, oh, At in the be- Starbucks, in between sets." Yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, that was that B C P Q S U C C
1: acronym service, yeah. It was a very it was the longest acronym yeah. that is it's the it's the most it's the most letters you can put in an acronym before it's completely unacceptable. <laughs> it needs a vowel so you can it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah
3: that's right. Uh, all that to be said. And then uh, Sue came to our live show. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and so why are we bumping into each other at conferences uh, around the country? Well we're sort of in the same lane, uh, in terms of, of what we are being requested to, to show up at these conferences for in the sense that, uh, you know, typically the three of us are there to talk about the patient experience and, and storytelling and the importance of storytelling when it comes to, to, um, to explaining the patient experience. But you're also there in, in a kind of similar sense because you are there speaking, uh, as a patient advocate. Um, and, and so our cr- paths have crossed several times now. And I've, I've just been really excited to have you on the show to kind of unpack all the work that you do. And, and I guess kind of dive into how you ended up where you are today in the work that you do. Because there's always this, there's always a fucking story there.
2: <laughs> the story behind the story.
3: That's right. I have
2: one
3: of those, yes, <laughs> so what is your story behind that story then I guess like you're like what it like you 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 had quite a life in within the healthcare system, but what's the where does it originate where did it begin
2: so my beginning uh I guess it came from when i was a child as it does with most people. And my therapist would like me to start there too, probably. But I was, uh, I was, my mom was a nurse and my aunt was a nurse and it was expected that I was to become a nurse. Like it was one of those unspoken things in a family, right? Like that's just what we did. Um, and so I went through school and getting like really good grades in English and social but kind of ignoring that part of it. And applied to nursing school um, in Edmonton. And I lasted uh, two years out of a four-year program. So my family like to joke that I'm half a nurse because I didn't make it quite through. So, you know, (laughs) if somebody has like a slight injury or need of first aid, I kind of know what to do. But otherwise, um, I'm certainly not a full nurse.
1: If somebody needs to be intubated... (laughs) Yeah. No, that's not so much my thing. You know,
2: the trach with the pin from mash. I can't do that. I can't do any of that kind of stuff.
3: I think you just do it like they did in the movie or or in the show and and pretty much nail it. Yeah. (laughs) Just, just poke a hole in the throat, stick a straw in and you're good.
2: No. And see, that was part of my problem. I was like too, I was told I was too soft. Like I didn't have the stomach to be a nurse And like the first year is fine because it's all kind of theory, but then you get into actually doing stuff to people and causing them pain. And Mm. I was like, I was like terrible at it. Like I would hesitate before I had to give somebody a needle Mm because I would be thinking, oh, this must hurt so much. Like I couldn't disassociate that. And so I was, I wasn't told overtly, but I, I figured out that I thought I didn't have the stomach to be a nurse. And when, in fact, now I realize if somebody had helped me back then kind of figure out those emotions and still feel compassion for people, you know, while I was caring for them, I think I actually would have made a really good nurse, mm. but nobody really talks about feelings.
1: Mm-hmm. In, that's really in interesting.
2: I, I, and it's, I think that's still true today.
1: I had a, I have a, I had a similar sort of uh, I had a similar sort of uh, crossroads when I started, um. About a decade ago, when I started <clears throat> working at and uh, managing the, the yoga studio that my mom had opened, and I felt um, and at the time I was like twenty years old, like all I did was smoke weed and do yoga, and uh, and and uh, with you, Brian, and uh, <laughs> it's not really any different today. <laughs> I mean, I do way more things above and beyond that. Sure, right, but right, at right, that right. time, it was boiled down was to pretty much. That. It's just that. funny
0: to hear you say that so bluntly because, it, like, I think back. Of you at that time and me, and I'm like, yeah, it's a pretty yeah, accurate pretty description. Accurate, yeah. <laughs> There's not much more to it than that.
1: <laughs> and uh, and 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 because I was I was very like wide eyed and and you know naive about the world and the way the world works and everything, I was like, I was really bummed that I had to um, that I had to charge people money. And uh, and and I was I was having this conversation with my mom, and, she, and I and I said I said I love I love teaching yoga. I love doing yoga. I love the interaction, I love explaining and, and helping people learn and all these things. But when it comes to saying like, hey, it, it costs this much money to do this, I felt really bad about it. And, uh, and then my mom one day, and the reason that this, and, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why this came to mind as well. My mom said, Tay, we're not selling them cigarettes. Like we are, we're, 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 we're trying to, we're trying to like give a service that is hopefully going to like help them and enrich their lives and make them feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and, and it just came to mind because like, cause you know, I was thinking about your position and like, and feeling that way that, you know, you are causing somebody pain, you know, you're going to stick the needle in their arm, which like definitely sucks. I mean, I've seen Jeremy get a needle and it's not a pretty <laughs> experience, nope. Nope. but ultimately, you know they're putting that catheter in because it's going to help <laughs> and they're going to take it out because good things are on the horizon and That'll if they consider
0: help. your feelings while they're doing that they can probably explain what they're doing in a way that's going to be more comforting when they're actually doing that you know yeah. what i mean like if 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 they talk to you and consider that you might be really scared when that's about to happen mm. and they sort of like guide you through that experience and tell you why it's going to hurt and the benefits for, for the the reasons why you're going to have to go through the pain. Mm-hmm. Then it will probably be easier for you to experience that. Yeah. So that,
1: so that's why that reminded me. So because because when you said that, you know if I had somebody there that said that like kind of brought you through that, it just reminded me of that.
2: Yeah, I was I was the student nurse, you know, in the OR. You're all masked up, so you can only see from the eyes up. Like now in the pandemic, and you know mm-hmm. they see I my, I would just all lost all the color in my face. And I was mm. about to like, kind of tip over <laughs> into the sterile, sterile field. And they're like, get this student nurse out of here. And and so that happened a number of times. But the thing is, I, you know, I, people kept saying you need a thick skin in order to be a nurse. And I, I don't believe that being sensitive and maybe being thin skinned is actually a weakness. I actually see it as a strength now. Mm. I just think sometimes healthcare forgets that it should be a mixture of science and the humanities because you're Mm. actually working with people. Mm -hmm. And I worry sometimes, I know I've heard this lots on your show, right? That idea that we are people we're human beings first. We're not diagnoses first. We're not, you know, patients first. And, and certainly, you know, if I zoom ahead a few years when my youngest son was born with down syndrome, I realized like I got reimmersed in the healthcare world, like in a totally different way. And this way was as a caregiver and a mother. And you know, I I s we still struggle with that, right? Getting health professionals to see Aaron as a person of value, not just as a down syndrome.
0: Mm-hmm. It's really it's really interesting. And this is why I'm really excited to talk to you today, is because um you we haven't mentioned it yet, but uh you're the author of of the book Bird's Eye View as well. And the sort of uh, subtitle to that book is A Life Lived in Healthcare, or one of the,
3: I don't know what you call it, but (laughs) some of the text on the cover. Isn't it called a subtitle? I I believe that is the, what do you call that in a book? It's a subtitle, right? There's the title, and then the sub. Maybe it's maybe it's just a statement on the cover, though. Let's ask the fucking author. Let's ask. Let's someone who wrote a
0: book. Let's ask the author. <laughs> is that a subtitle? <laughs> but it says a life lived in healthcare. What is that? A subtitle?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, if okay, so oh I God. actually also own a health communications company, so it's like a comms thing, right? So <laughs> you have a name that you can't explain, like by ah. the name, like your sick boys is like it's pretty self-explanatory. You don't need to add a subtitle or subheading to that. But if you don't, then you kind of have to add the the extra part to explain what you're talking about. So bird's eye view doesn't sound like a book about healthcare. So that's why I had to add like stories of a life lived in
0: healthcare. So it is a, that is a subtitle then. Perfect. Okay. So um, what I wanted to, to, to sort of like um, transition from your experiences being a half of a nurse into Mm -hmm. Um, having a more direct uh, experience with the uh, healthcare system when Aaron was born. Um, It's interesting that, that like there was this idea that as a human being growing up in a family with other nurses, that there was a sort of like expectation that you were going to become part of the healthcare system. Yet um, the, the interesting part about your whole, whole story is that as a human being, you've kind of had all of these different experiences with the healthcare system, just by nature of being a person on this planet. And so with the experience of, of when Aaron was born and you found out that Aaron had down syndrome, um, what was that like going from being somebody who had this like sort of very basic understanding of doing two years of a nursing program into this system, where all of a sudden, I'm sure there's a lot of decisions that you, as an individual, have to consider and make for the health and well being of your son as he's being born.
2: Well, I, I I see it as it was like we were being thrown out of a boat into the deep end, right with not with nothing. Like there was nobody to help us. Like when you know we got Aaron's diagnosis. And it was delivered in such a terrible way, which happens to a lot of families Mm -hmm. and really puts folks, you know, in a place of of weakness instead of strength, right? It's almost like we got thrown right to the bottom of the ocean and we had to figure out a way to swim back up again. And and it was, was, I guess the baby I expected wasn't the baby I got. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
2: you have to, what I feel like I had to do, I had to grieve for that baby I expected in order to accept the baby that I got. And, you know, in writing the book, I realized, you know, the parts about Aaron is, is I had to do a lot of self-reflection. It was really hard. And I realized the reason I was in such grief when he was born with Down syndrome was because of the way I myself felt about disabled people. And it's like super shameful <coughs> at that, but there's a lot of like, we need to look inwards to say why, was I so devastated when he was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And that Mm. had to do with the way I felt about disabled people. So on a personal level, it was really hard. And then the medical system compounds all that by the way they give the diagnosis, Mm. whether it's like prenatally, which is a whole other thing, or once the baby is born, you know, and it's often, you know, they talk about, you get testing, the risk of having a baby with Down syndrome well you don't have a risk of winning the lottery like that's not a value neutral term like they don't say chance right hmm. they they make it into a negative thing and certainly when when he was diagnosed he was treated as a as a tragedy and the fact is a baby had been born and to me that's a that's a cause for celebration so i think there's a lot of value terrible values laden Hmm. into the healthcare profession about disabled people to begin with. And then I had my own terrible values that I had to work through and the combination of it. It it just wasn't pretty. It was a dark time. I feel terrible saying this because I think my baby saw me cry for the first few years, first few months of his life.
1: I, I think that's, I think that that's a really, I think that that's incredibly, um, valuable for people to hear because like I'm, cause I'm hearing that. And as somebody, I don't have any, I don't have kids and, 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 and I think that, and I, I don't think that there would be, I don't think that there's any shortage of people, especially people who don't have, especially somebody who has no children. And, um, you know, even, even people who have children who that don't have, um, that don't have Down syndrome or aren't born with maybe like any, um, any disability, but especially people with no children will probably be, sitting there and, and have like a lot of those same feelings and would, and and I would, and I would imagine would probably, um, would probably, um, I don't want to use the word naturally because I think that there's kind of like a blend of like nature versus nurture. Like what, you know, the the whole, um, like you said, adding a, adding the, the, the term that there's a risk that, you know, there's an X percent uh, risk that, you know, your child uh, could be born with Down syndrome. I think is something that a lot of people, most most people, would would go, yeah, that that makes sense to me. Um, but then hearing hearing it from a mother wh- who has a son with Down syndrome and hearing the the reasons why you don't feel that that is a fair term to use to associate a risk with a a human being born, I think that that's really valuable to people. I'd like to I'd like to know more. I'd like to know more about that because I just think that there are a lot of people out there that can that could benefit from from hearing um, hearing how people feel from the side of having a, a child de- uh, born with Down syndrome or born with any you know disability that people would more commonly you know associate as a a bad thing or a negative thing or you know a burden or whatever the case may be.
2: Yeah, I, I think. I mean, it's like when you have a kid born and they get a diagnosis, they give you like a book or a bunch of pamphlets that say everything that's wrong with them and everything that's going to go wrong with them. And we were given this book, Your Baby with Down Syndrome. And it basically listed every single possible thing, all this health stuff, all this cognitive disability stuff, like everything that could go wrong with them Mm. Uh, and that's how you start out your child's life but the fact is I have two older children too who are now in their 20s and uh, I mean (laughs) you find out that your kid isn't perfect like I don't know at age three or so like (laughs) gradual dawning that no child is perfect and my eldest son in fact is a total punk rocker like he's so far removed from my current life now he's into grindcore and super heavy stuff he lives down in the states and like you know he he went a different way but nobody gave me a book when he was born telling me that that was going to be <laughs> struggle with this. like there's
1: struggle with. But he all might be into grindcore at yeah. some <laughs> point <laughs> right. he, he might like he might be like a pamphlet about grind like like, here's what to do if your kid's into grindcore. <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> Here
1: are that the risks associated
3: with heavy moshing.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: I, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> to, to that point, though, like about about the about the way that you received the diagnosis for Aaron, like w- was it was it was it was it you know layer upon layer upon layer of things that resulted in it being a really uh, uh, dare I say like traumatic experience for you or or. Um, or was it like one, was it one specific, like, how do you, how do you receive that diagnosis? How did you receive it? Did you receive it before Aaron was actually born or, or after, or like, what was that process like for you?
2: Uh, yeah, his story about that is he, um, they, so they offer everybody prenatal testing. I don't think it matters your age now, but back then it was over 35 and they say it's, I was 34 when I got pregnant with Aaron. He's my second marriage. So he's like the love child of my my second mm. marriage. Mm. And I had two older kids uh, before that. And so they offer you this prenatal screening and then you can go to testing and whatever. It's all very complicated. And I just said, no, I didn't want it. Like, and, and they, they offer it to you. Like, it's just a regular thing that that's what you get. Like you're being screened for diabetes or something. And that, you also need to be screened for for having a baby with Down syndrome, and because Down syndrome is easy to detect prenatally, right? It's something sure. that they they do it early now, super early. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, I just said no, and then I never thought about it again. And then Aaron was born, but kind of in the middle of the night, and he came really fast, and I kind of I I I'm a bit of a granola that makes sense. Mom, like I want to get out of the hospital as soon as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And so we left like early in the morning and nobody really took a good look at him. And now I see pictures of him and you can totally tell he has Dell syndrome when he was first born, <laughs> right. but it got missed in the hospital, which is very unusual. Usually the diagnosis happens in the delivery room, like something mm. oh, or, wow. or the baby has some medical stuff, right. you know, right. struggling to breathe or has some you know, GI issues or heart issues, you know, lots of kids, babies with Down syndrome born with, well, about 40% with heart issues. So Aaron didn't have any of that. So we ended up taking him home. And, but I kept looking at his little face, you know, when I was holding him and and nursing him at home and, you know, he had this round face and his, his ears are lower set. And I don't know, he, he, he looked like he had Down syndrome to me. I remember Googling it like in the middle of the night and I asked the public health nurse, do you think the baby has Down syndrome? And she's she looked at him, she 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 looked just at his palm. So some people with Down syndrome have just one line in the middle of their hand. Oh really. no, no way. I don't know. Yeah. Everyone look at their I don't, but I the yeah, people yeah, yeah, don't I, have I Down syndrome. I my
1: hand.
2: <clears throat> yeah, it's like most of us, but Aaron doesn't. He's got the M, like it looks like the M. So mm-hmm. he, she's just dismissed me. She's like, oh no. But then he he wasn't nursing properly. And I was like this super-duper breastfeeding mom. Like I used to be a La Leche League leader. I don't know if you know La Leche League. They, they,
1: no, what's that? I know that groups, Leche I know. is milk. Yeah, milk, yeah. exactly. In Spanish. So, this is a league
3: of <laughs> – hold on, please unpack that because yeah. I'm so cu- curious. What, what is this? And can <laughs> I join? It's the, wow, dairy, this work. It's the
1: dairy League. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, it's like the it's, – it's a support group for moms. I mean pretty left lefty support group for moms who – nurse their kids. And I knew that's where that's kind of where my like-minded mums come from. Mm-hmm. Lots of home birthers and, you know, like I said, granola moms. Granola. So
1: yeah. I, yeah.
2: I knew how to breastfeed a kid. Like I like I know how to do that. And Aaron was having troubles because he has a low muscle tone, which is something that comes with Down syndrome. Right. So mm-hmm. he was losing weight. So he was below his worth birth weight. And so um I had to keep taking him into the doctor's office get him weight because they were concerned about his weight like he's only seven pounds and he was falling less and less and anyways the doctor i went in by myself that they never suggested they had any suspicion which is another negative term right that he might have down syndrome but obviously they did because the doctor said to me i was alone in the room with aaron do you remember when we talked about prenatal testing he said and you know i was holding my baby at that point and i was worried about him because he was losing weight and I kind of knew he had Down syndrome in the back of my head, but nobody would validate this for me. And when he said that to me, do you, do you remember we talked about prenatal testing? I heard in my translated head, do you remember we talked about terminating this baby? Like, that's what I heard in my head. Mm. And I was just like, that's not the way you bring up, you think the baby might have Down syndrome to a family, right? And, and then he was so uncomfortable with disclosing the diagnosis he just left the room like he just left. And so Aaron and I sat there by ourselves, like waiting for my husband to show up because I phoned him. So you have to cut, because we had to take him to the lab to get a blood test as part of the first mm. anyways, the mm. diagnosis, but it was done like really poorly. And I, I think I've forgiven that doctor since then. I don't think physicians get taught how to disclose diagnosis. Well,
3: mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how do you, how-
0: Like what would be, it's, it's interesting because I'm, I'm hearing you talk about this and I, I think immediately like, Oh yeah, that like, that isn't the right way to do that. Or I could, I could see, I understand how that could be really hurtful to you. And I, when I hear you say that using words like risk or suspicion, they sort of like have these negative connotations to them. Um, but at the same time, I'm also thinking about the um, the challenges that come along with raising uh, a child who has a uh, disability, and so I'm wondering how, because I feel like there's probably this area where you can educate people, because it, it seems like it's a the issue is a bit of is, is surrounding a lack of education in terms of how we educate people about what types of needs, um, babies and children with, uh, intellectual disabilities have compared to, um, kids born without intellectual disabilities, but in a way that we don't sort of imply that it's a negative thing. Like, is is there a way to sort of, um, educate new parents on what they might be dealing with that is different, but not necessarily, um, negative or worse?
2: Or bad.
0: Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's
2: the key, right? So it's different with Aaron, but it doesn't mean that it's bad. And I I tell you, 90% of our struggles, more than that, have to do with systems, <coughs> health systems, education systems, and society about right. how other people look at him, because he's got a visible disability. As opposed to him himself, like mm. like I said, all kids are trouble, like they're yeah, they're, right. all, yeah. they're all a lot of work mm. there's always something with them, and you know, if you think of Down syndrome and any disability just being a natural part of the human fabric, mm. and that's something that we just have in the world that adds to diversity, like it's a different way to reframe it as opposed to that it's something good or bad, right. And, I think the only saving grace of that is that you need to meet with other parents who are going through the same thing. And I know I've heard on your show this talk about a lot, right? Peer mm-hmm. support, that system mm-hmm. calls it. But those friendships kind of normalize things and, and make it okay if you have each other. And that's really I think the thing that really saved me in Right. Own-
0: the, the, and the reason why I asked that question is because um so uh, my partner and I started yoga for people living with intellectual disabilities um a couple of years ago called Blissability. And I remember talking to somebody uh, uh, who is an advocate for people with living with intellectual disabilities and they were saying that you know there's this fight for equality for people who live with disabilities, but there is this sort of fine line um, in terms of like being able to access government assistance and funding that if you start saying that they're equal to, um, and maybe equal is the wrong word, but they were saying that the 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 concern is that with equality may becomes like uh, go- lack of access to government funding and programs that support these people. So like, for example, if... Um, there is money going into uh, group homes um, for people because there's one of the challenges with the. You can probably speak more to this, Sue, but one of the challenges for people living with intellectual disabilities is is care after they um, sort of get a. I think d- depending on the province, it could be above 21 to 23. There's not a lot of access to publicly funded care, so it oftentimes costs um, families with people who live with intellectual disability a lot a lot of money to get full-time care. Um and some people need it and some people don't. But if you start saying that th- that they're equal and start pulling away some of that government funding and again maybe equal isn't the right word. Um defining that there is a difference is important in giving access to that government funding. So how do you, like what is your perspective on that and how do you sort of um define that without saying that those people are less than? And
2: what, I think we all need support, right? Like I think everybody needs it and we all need it at different levels, whether you have a disability or not. And in fact, we've always been really open with Aaron. He's, he just turned 18 last week. So mm. um, he's, he likes to talk a lot and he's done lots of advocacy work on his own, his mother tries to step aside now. So then that's a whole other thing, right? But, you know, talking about me as a mother is different than talking on behalf of Aaron. So, but I can say we've talked to him about having Down syndrome. He understands he has Down syndrome. And he says he doesn't have Down syndrome, but he is Down syndrome. That's what he told told us, Mm. is Down syndrome. So for him, and everybody's different, that is part of his identity. And that's Mm. not something, I know I've even heard of families who don't tell their kids they have Down syndrome, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, so I think, you know, a part of acceptance is celebrating like that difference and acknowledging it. And we've re- that's been our family philosophy that way. And, you know, I think it's not about being equal. It's more about an equitable thing. And God help me in this pandemic, this has come up as a huge issue is health equity, uh, yeah. especially for people who are high risk for COVID. Um, It's about valuing people as human beings simply because they're human beings, not because they contribute to the economy or they have a certain, you know, they can like achieve so high, but just, if we could just start with that, you know, everybody deserves to be valued and loved and cared for and accepted and celebrated just on the very fact that they're human.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I, I'm, I'm kind of like, and and I I think you're right there that Brian the way that it really is just it's a little bit of a semantic issue there like if you take a because like you know everybody is you know it's not a it's not a hard argument to sell at least to us anyway that that everybody is equal um, regardless of anything but that like you know some that this this community over here which might be lower income than this community over here like this community needs a little bit more. Support with funding for their, for whatever, sports programs, blah, 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 blah. It's, yeah, Mm -hmm. like, not necessarily a a question of, like, equality, but more so, like, where, like, where, yeah, where is support needed and, like, what level of support? And I remember you explaining that to me one time, that you were saying that there was sort of these, like, voices in the community that were, that were, um, that were voicing this, like, like, um, sort of, like, we don't need your help. Sort of um, mm. thing, and 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 then there were, and then others in the community were sort of like going, y- "Yeah, we do."
0: Yeah, in the same community. In yeah. the same yeah. in the
1: same, yeah. in the same yeah. community, going, "Yeah, we yeah we do." Like what? Like don't say that. Like that's not the that's not the argument. Right. right. Yeah. We're saying like everyone. We're saying there's an equality. Where there's an equality issue here, and we don't want there to be an equality issue because there shouldn't be. Mm. But like that's separate from the. Which I remember you telling me that, and I was like, "Yeah, right. i mean we should
0: we should we should know more about this by now <laughs> that it's it, it isn't equality isn't the goal, it's equity right which is
1: yeah, because equality should be should be, is what we're talking about. should be uh, unquestioned mm-hmm. or unquestionable mm-hmm. um
3: just just to kind of throw back to that experience that you had with getting the diagnosis for Aaron um you know, speaking about these conferences at the very beginning that we've kind of bumped into each other at, um, and, and at these conferences for ourselves, speaking about talking to patients, talking to patients in a way that, uh, you know, provides them with a safe space to open up and share their experiences, share their stories, um, It seems that whenever we do this, uh, these these sorts of talks at these conferences, at the end in the Q and A, almost inevitably, and typically for people who aren't aren't familiar, like these conferences are generally attended by you know physicians, nurses, people who are like working within the healthcare pr- profession, um, we'll we'll almost inevitably get the question of like, how do you talk? To pay, like how, what? What would you guys say to us in in terms of like teaching us how to be better in terms of the way that we communicate with patients? And I always find that question to be like a, a, a bit of a, a mind fuck because I'm like, very Well, oh, oh, man, like you're asking you're asking a theater school dropout and like a, a pot smoking yogi and a guy who like works with AI uh, how to how to talk to <laughs> how to talk to your patients like. I don't, I mean, I don't know. Talk to them like they're your friends. Like, like it, which sounds so simple. And so I think one time we actually did answer a question like that by saying, just be their friend. And I think one of the like responses was like, well, we can't be their friend. That's unprofessional. (laughs) That's unprofessional.
1: Let's phone a friend.
0: Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of Sync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough.
2: I'll zoom ahead in my story. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 please.
2: So, so my whole book it is about, it's, the basis of it is, Uh, Humanity and healthcare for all, like, that's what I talk about. And when I go and do talks and they're inspirational things, you know, I talk about that over and over and over again that we need it for both the the patients, the families, the staff, the physicians, everybody, like that's what we need. Like that's the, I'm so angry at the health system right now because of the way it's responded to the pandemic and not the health professionals, but the higher ups, right? The administrators. And the problem is our, the health system is built as a corporation (laughs) even here in Canada. I know people Mm -hmm. don't believe that, but that to me is true. And it's really run like a, like a car factory based on efficiency. And so when you're pushing people through more and more and more, what ends up happening is the staff feel all rushed. Right. I Mm -hmm. I remember. So, so, so as you know, (laughs) my story is that I was diagnosed with breast cancer four years ago. And then I got another perspective (laughs) because I wasn't just the mom of somebody Mm -hmm. in the health system. It was actually me. And like, cancer, and I know you've had lots of uh, folks on your show who've had cancer, but it's like really personal. Like it's Mm. really freaking personal, cancer is. And I couldn't really hide behind the role of being Aaron's mom anymore because it was happening to me. And what I found in the cancer world, I did find this in the disabled world with Aaron, but even more so was that the oncologists like were terrible communicators. They didn't Mm. want they didn't want you to see them as a human being. And they hid behind this really big facade of that professionalism that they talk about. And what I, what I counter that, if someone said that to me, oh, you know, we can't be friends with our patients because it's not professional. Well, I don't want to be your Facebook friend. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like what I'm talking about is like, is like us seeing each other as people. Like, I want a doctor who is a human being, like a flawed human being, somebody who admits they make mistakes, somebody who can say, I don't know. Like, that's what I want. But the way that they're pushed through their schooling is that they're expected to be perfect, right? And so they can't allow themselves to be vulnerable, especially in oncology. I found this more than anywhere else to allow me to, like, take a little peek my oncologist, I never took a peek into her heart. She never mm. let me see that.
3: Do you Do you think that's like a protection mechanism for the, for, I mean, th- this is, this is so speculative, but like, do you think maybe speaking for your own personal oncologist, do you think that that was like a way for her to protect her own emotions? You know, because like, I can imagine being in, I can imagine being in the role of an oncologist and yeah. your fucking job is to basically daily, tell people the worst news that they might have ever received in their entire life would become pretty friggin' exhausting. If you allowed your, if you allowed to like, if you allowed yourself to open your heart up to like, but, but so yeah, I guess I am being like a little bit of like devil's advocate, but like, do do you think that there's a, there's a, a piece of that happening there?
2: But that, so I think that's the lie. That's the lie that they're told that if you allow patients to get to know you and you allow yourself to be vulnerable is that you will burn out because you'll just give everything to your patients and you'll have nothing left for yourself. But in fact, there's research that says the opposite is true, that if you if you disconnect from the whole purpose of healthcare, which is caring for other people and you start treating people like they're in the car factory, right? And being very formal and, and not letting people peek into your heart. That's actually what makes you burn out because Mm. the meaningful purpose, hopefully that's why you started healthcare to begin with is because you (coughs) care for people is actually gone. And so I think it's a, it's a ruse it's they want you to think that. So you're more efficient because I think they just want to push people through as quickly as possible. But Mm -hmm. the fact is sitting and listening and validating what patients say and like, that's your, so I get mad about this. Because that's your freaking job in healthcare. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. why you sign up for it. You're not a scientist. You're actually working with human beings. And I think that's where the struggle is between the science piece of it and the humanities piece mm-hmm. of yeah, it. And if that's where the answer to a better world in healthcare lies too. I believe it's in the humanities. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, if if you want if 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 that is if that is the if that is the tact that a that a physician is taking. It's like, it's like at some point there kind of has to be a, there kind of has to be like, a Hey, this job isn't just being fascinated by how can't like how cancer cells duplicate. It can't be
3: like, it has to be
1: that, (laughs) but it also has to be the ability to speak to people. Mm -hmm. Because if you are in that, if you, if that, if you are in that role, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, like whatever, like, you know, we could we could all sit around here and have like really fascinating ideas about, you know, the things that we talk about on the podcast. But if one of us got onto the mic and and was like, I can't speak now because there's a mic in my face. It's like, well, I can't do this job anymore mm-hmm. because I'm not good at this part of it, and this part is crucial. And in healthcare, if you are in, you know, if you're a researcher and you don't have to talk to people, you know, by all means, go ahead and be, be, you know, head in the book, scientists, science facts, all mm-hmm. that, all the time. But if you are talking to people, there has to be, you have to be human.
0: It's, it's interesting because my, so when my mom uh, was going through her cancer diagnosis, uh, there was, so my, my mom um, raves about the oncologist that she had. He was the best thing that could have ever happened to her during her uh, cancer diagnosis. And, and the reason why is, so I've asked my mom about this a lot. Uh, because I'm fascinated about ab- 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 what made him so good, and I I met him a couple times, and he was an amazing person, like super charismatic, uh, really funny. He was a young Irish guy actually, and uh, that's, that, that, and, that's, and, that's and, it. Yeah, and, <laughs> he, and was so leprecom, he, he was a wasn't He was <laughs> like just a really sweet guy, Doctor O'Malley. Oh, of um, course. of course, yeah, really, really, really sweet guy. And, um, or a green suit. There was this, there was this moment, this story <laughs> that my, my mom talks about, um, where she had just, um, so he recommended and, and apparently, like this amazing surgeon because there was this, uh, um, my mom had three options for surgery, um, when she was having her, her bladder reconstructed. And he recommended this sort of more uncommon one, but he felt that he could do the surgery really well. And anyway, he did a really good job. And, And, uh, and it, it worked out really well for my mom, but while she was in the hospital recovering, she needed these sort of unique catheters, um, that, uh, you could only get from this like one drugstore in town. And it was a Saturday morning and, um, she needed to self catheterize and, uh, and she was out of catheters in the hospital. And so they were calling everybody around town to see if she could get them anywhere. And, They called the oncologist to ask him about them and and he was like, Uh fuck, I know I have some at my office. So he on a Saturday when he wasn't working, drove to his office, got them, brought them to my mom in the hospital, and helped her like get her thing figured out. And that like unprofessional. That, like, moment of, like, him, yeah. co- like, on a day off <laughs> That's a line. going a line to, going to his you. office and, and like, coming in to help her when she was in this moment of need when he very well could have just not answered his phone. Mm. Um, it, like, was life-changing for my mom. Yeah. Like, it made, yeah. and, and even, and I said to my mom, I was like, I mean, you can't expect doctors to work on their like we can't have this expectation that that's how people will respond to that moment well though where because these people need to have time for their families and stuff too, so like what like i was I was sort of just challenging her and trying to get her to dig down more, and like what was it ab- about that and she was like it was just this moment of like where he had this opportunity to show me that I really mattered as a person mm-hmm. so what it, it did it wasn't that he had to come in on his day off and do that it wasn't that it, it was the fact that. He and it was it kind of to go back to this like this idea of like being your patient's friend. It's like that's something that your friend would do for you. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's not you're not my mom wasn't friending him on Facebook, though I'm sure she would love she to has, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh yeah. but but like it was this like act of compassion yeah. where this person
3: truly showed her that he really did care. Th- and this- it made
0: all the difference.
3: This notion of like humanity for all in healthcare, um, I, I take it this is one of the things that you you actively speak about at conferences. Um, I'm curious to know like what it like what has the response been? You know, like when you go to these medical conferences, uh, whatever they might be, and you bring up this messaging, like are are do you feel like it's a message that's being heard and, and taken? taken seriously? Do you think that there's, do you, do you think that, do you think that there's, you know, um, a a population of the people attending these conferences who hear what you're saying and think, damn, she's right. Like there, there needs to be, there needs to be change happening or.
2: Well, I'd say it depends. Like I probably, I don't even know how many conferences I've spoken at like dozens and, Some of it depends on the profession because certain professions have certain cultures um, mm. it hasn't always been received like you think oh Sue she's the kindest lady and she's going to come and talk about all the great I, I talk about warm blankets a lot you know mm. and it's a metaphor for literally warm blankets that you get in healthcare when you're sick and how awesome those are I say it's the best thing about having a baby is they cover you up with a warm blanket mm. afterwards well, except the the cart, yeah. but it is the best but there's other things like you talked about with your mom Brian that was a warm blanket to me, mm-hmm. and those are the things that you do that are over and above what that's what it has to be an action, right? It has to be something that's that's actually done, but it can be something really simple too. And I do talk about the simple things because I work for children's hospitals both in Edmonton and here in Vancouver, like to try to <clears throat> improve the family experience in the children's hospital. That was my job. <coughs> mom in the hospital and I did a lot of storytelling and sharing stories so you know and so sharing a story like your your mom had at explaining about how this made a huge difference to her like it might not have even been a big deal for the doctor to do that I you know but for her it was like this pivotal moment so Mm -hmm. I try to talk about like even when you're walking around in the hallway, most hospitals are really busy places and people are in a hurry. And, you know, and the you can see the patients and families there and most of them are lost. Right. If they've never been there before, they're kind of looking around like but everybody ignores them, especially in the busy hospitals. They have their heads down. They're looking at their phone. And, you know, and when I worked at the Children's Hospital here in Vancouver, the one thing I said was, and they used to make fun of me for saying this, but keep your head up in the hall, head up in the hall, like smile at people, say hello. If you see somebody's obviously lost, like help take them to where they need to go. And so just even starting with this really simple stuff, that's the kind of thing I talk about. So Mm -hmm. things that somebody could walk out the door and start doing like right away, Mm -hmm. but it hasn't always, every, every time, especially if I talk to physicians, Every time I I mention about these kindnesses, like uh, listening to people, helping them be seen, right? Like, um, I somebody in the back of the room will be all agitated, you know, when you're on stage and people don't think that you can see them all, but you totally can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like, uh, so I can see there's one say there's one doc in the back and he's just like, Ugh. he just is waiting for the Q and A because he's got something to say to me, right? This me talking about all this kindness and compassion. And so inevitably, you know, I'm watching him. He gets up, he says, well, we don't have time to do all that. Mm-hmm. That's the answer. That's the pushback I, I get in most of my talks. And I'm ready for that question because I know that they say, because our health system is built like in an industrial model. Like I said, like we got cars going through the factory. So you have to get people through as quickly as <clears> possible. <throat> and the phys- they feel that too. Like they get a lot of pressure to do that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise they fall behind. And so, one thing I heard from a nursing prof, she, she told me, you don't like, you don't take the time out of your day to do that. You make the time mm-hmm. because that kind of demonstration of compassion, that is healthcare. Like mm-hmm. that yeah. actually is your job. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I've had other audiences that have not been open. And in fact, I had a terrible experience talking to emergency department staff who were very hostile to my message mm-hmm. and, I'd say I got heckled. I'd never been heckled before. It was pretty bad. Like it's kind of a mob mentality. And one, you know, I was just talking about, you know, welcoming people to the emergency department, right. Instead mm-hmm. of like making it hard to park. And then you had, there's all these stop signs you have to wash your hands and like, nowhere does it say welcome. So you have to go to emergency. Nobody wants to be there and everyone's agitated because they have to go to emergency to yeah, begin. Hell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. So like, why not make it a little bit nicer? Like just, through easy stuff, like play some nice music, like maybe the lights could go lower. Like I had these suggestions for that. Stupidly, I was so naive. In, and I had shared some of Aaron's story experiences in the emergency department too, which is like the worst thing because afterwards I felt like I had betrayed him in a terrible way. Hmm. But this nurse got up, male nurse, and said, I used to work in the military. And I'm like, oh shit I am in like deep trouble like when he got up to say that I was like (laughs) I was like standing up there I was like okay he said you patients expect hospitals to be like hotels you think the H on the hospital stands for hotels and then once he said that other people started to get up And and like they were like relive. I was like the epitome of every awful patient who'd come in drunk to the emergency department, who you know, yelled at them and abused them, which is not okay. I'm not saying that's okay, but Mm -hmm. they just all this anger came out. And one nurse even said to me, she said, if a patient's mean to me, I'm just mean right back at them, she said. That's what she said. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, like these people, the environment they work on, like they have like depersonalized patients so much. Yeah. I guess so they think, so they can get their job, but there's no caring or compassion left. Like it was just a horrifying experience. And so I realized this idea of talking about kindness and compassion in healthcare, it's not a given.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And and you're, you're totally right about like the whole point of how it really depends on who you're talking to, you know, like I'm, I've 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 spoken and and I think we've spoken at a couple, but I've spoken at a lot of like palliative care conferences. Fuck, man! Every time I do, I'm like I am just surrounded by the most like like empathetic, beautiful, loving individuals. Like I couldn't I couldn't imagine the problem though getting that kind of reaction at at like a palliative care conference. But then but then yeah, you think about the ER and it's like it is this high intensity. There's a, a there is a very like militaristic well, ER kind of feeling thing. to it, but, but it's so.
0: But, but it's interesting because I think of like uh, uh, Gabe and Doctor John Ross, ER doctors that we've yeah, had totally. on the podcast, and like super kind and compassionate. Well, people. of course there and, are them, and but but my point is like when when we go into um, we've talked to Dalhousie a bunch of times to med school students, and I feel like everybody there, it feels like they're all there for the right reason because mm-hmm. they want to make this world a better place. They want to provide. But, the the, the Good, high quality the, care. The
1: problem with and Sue, this has kind of been something that's been on my mind since you mentioned it for like ten or fifteen minutes ago about about it, the system running like an industri like yeah. an industrial company and 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 the fact is is that it does and it also doesn't in the way that efficiency is not efficiency when it sacrifices quality, and so and so. I think it, it seems to me, and, I, and I'm not going to say I have a solution to this, but I have a bit of an anecdote to share to, to maybe shed some light on. It's something that I've talked to both of you guys about, um, but I don't mm. think I've ever shared the details of it on the show. But I thought you were going to say this. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, efficiency, you know, it's efficient for me. It, you know, I might think it's efficient for me to kick shit under, the, under my couch, you know, that's on the floor, but like I'm going to have to pick up that couch and clean that shit at some point. And it's going to cause me probably more work later down the road if I do if like if I could just do it now and and it, and it would ultimately be more efficient although although I I could be tricked into thinking that it'll be better if I just if I just don't worry about it and kick it under the couch. And I feel like the healthcare system is is a lot like that where when you're talking about when sue when you're talking about like pushing as many people through as possible and that just seems to be like such a Massive, massive theme of our entire healthcare system is just like volume and quickness, and like come in and get out and as fast as humanly possible that this could happen. Let's make it happen that way because, like the doc said in the Q and A, we don't have time for that. And and so so I I I got in a car accident a couple of years ago, a bike accident, hit by a car, and I and and that prompted me to get a family doctor. I hadn't had a family doctor for years. Um, since I'd had a pediatrician, in fact, <clears throat> and I, so I, I, ended up through a, you know, through a, through the grapevine of a few friends, I was put in contact with a clinic that was taking out some patients and I, and I, and I got in at a clinic and I had my first conversation with my new family doctor and I immediately talked to these guys and was like, guys, my doctor is my f- best friend. Like I, <laughs> I want to go have, like, we're going to go get beers. He's the man. We had this great hangout. We talked for like, we talked for 30 minutes. I didn't even have, I was just going to like give him my, you know, this is who I am. These are some of the things that I've like got on my mind, blah, blah, blah. I don't even necessarily have anything that I want to have like looked at or anything. It was just like, a, like a, an, an initial meeting. Is yeah. he He's Irish? Like, <laughs> he, was, he is uh, by descent, but no okay. green suit. Okay. And so I, I'm like blown away by how amazing and like how much time he had for me and especially because the family doctor sort of family medicine system in Nova Scotia and like getting a family doctor is next oh, to man. impossible it sucks and and everybody who i know who has a family doc is like oh yeah you go in there one thing 15 minutes no questions asked like that's it yeah max that's the <laughs> that's the that's the formula and i go wow that was not my experience now uh ultimately my doc m- moved to another place and I got transferred to another person. And I thought, oh, well, I'm not going to, oh, that, that was that person. Then I met with this doctor, same thing. Incredible amount of time for me. And then I found out through Kyla, my partner, that the clinic that I go to is a part of a pilot program in Nova Scotia of a handful of clinics where you don't bill MSI, which is like our, you don't bill per session. All the doctors, all the family doctors there are on salary. And, and it was like, oh, that simple fact that they're on salary. So like now you sacrifice now, now I, I, I've in that, in that idea of efficiency, I I think to myself like, well, so you are inevitably going to give up. You're going to see less people in a day if, but if you're chilling, doing science experiments with your uh, right, patients, right. Because we threw some nitrous, uh, some <laughs> liquid nitrogen on the floor and it was really fun. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, story. and I thought like, but the quality is such that I know that my doc has time for me and that, my doc will make time for me if something is, if I really need to. And, and, and he left me going, listen, it's usually two weeks to book, but if you really need something, if you really need something, um, Thursdays, you can, you can pretty much show up here and get in. And if it's like urgent any day, like a day or two max. And like, if it's serious, we can get you in. No problem. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. And, it, sorry, Brian, is that an yeah, issue? Okay. No okay. Um, and then and, and so I'm going, oh my God, oh, oh that's that's so amazing. So now does it does it make things ultimately more efficient that I don't feel like I need to go to see the doc for every little thing? Because I know I'm gonna have this short amount of time and I'm gonna have to, oh, like I've got this little thing. I I'm gonna have to make this appointment because I've got this little thing. Now I feel like because the level of care that I'm gonna get when I do go, that I am maybe less of a burden in terms of like, you know, maybe a financial burden or a time burden on the whole whole system because of this efficiency thing. And and I it just it just like makes me think about the idea that a system is efficient just because it churns people through it at an effect at an eff, "quote unquote" effective rate like can we trade can we trade the amount of people that we see in a given day for quality spent with that person and ultimately can that shift the economics that we are so beholden to because that's the problem. Ultimately, is the economic <laughs> impact of it.
0: I, I think, and just an add to add to that too. I think I think it's easy to find a solution. There, there. I think there's a lot of solutions out there to fix what is wrong with the system right now. W- one very easy one is an attitude change by the people who are administering care, in the sense that it takes a very small amount of time to make somebody feel like they're being heard and
3: like they matter. Or seen. Yeah, that that notion that there's not enough time. How is there not enough fucking time to just just smile at someone, right? That's that's, it. Yeah, that's 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 it. That's a really good
0: point. But one one quick thing that made a world of difference for me when I was so surprised about this. I had my wisdom teeth taken out by my dentist a couple months ago. And uh, the day after I had them removed, my phone rang and it was the – um oral surgeon and he was like hey I'm just following up just wanted to see how you're making out do you feel okay any problems like everything's okay and and I hung up the phone it took like it was like a minute long call I was like yeah everything's good thanks for calling and like I was like wow that's incredible like he's thinking about me the next day that's yeah. wild and it's it, little things and it made such a difference to to me that he took that one minute to, to give me a call mm-hmm.
2: I think yeah. knowing you have a doctor that has your back is like very calming right like I I remember my doc my family doc who actually is the one that gave me the cancer diagnosis she would just phone me kind of randomly and say like you said Brian like how are you doing like and I swear it took her two two minutes but the effect on me and I think this is about like changing it, I'd like to think about it being relationship based care, like it's about two human beings having a relationship together. And I talk a lot in my book, and people think I'm off my rocker, but I actually don't care. I think that healthcare should be about love. I like I think that's the key, that's the core of it that nobody talks about. It's like not oh, that's like super unprofessional. I'm not talking about like, romantic love or sexual love. I'm talking about caring for each other Mm. as human beings. And to me, you know, I've been talking a lot in this pandemic about burning the whole thing down and what a disaster it has been, especially out here in BC. And they're just like, just the way, the problem is the, the the values are misaligned and a lot of it does have to do with how physicians are paid. And then it's based on the get the pay. When I was in for radiation therapy, I had to go in for 20 days. I remember right at the beginning, the therapist said to me, we have 12 minutes to get you in, get you positioned, you know, under the big machine, like get, you know, put the, they draw all over you and stuff. Like put the rays on, get out of the room, like zap you. And then you get up and leave. Mm. And what that said to me was, I better not like, I don't know, start crying or something yeah. or like mm. be having a bad day. Because there's no wiggle room for that in the 12 minutes. Like there's no it's just you'll throw a wrench
3: in the whole system. Yeah, Yeah, I just
2: and I think that we've lost our way in healthcare Mm. if we're thinking about people like that. And I think it actually it it harms the healthcare professionals too. Mm -hmm. They, you know, most of them do want to care. And so I would mostly place the blame on that high level health officials, health bureaucrats that have really lost sight of what really matters in healthcare. Mm -hmm.
3: What would you, you know, as we, as we come close to to closing out here, I, I'm, I am, you know, again, having said that there are, there are quite a few healthcare professionals that listen. Um, I think a lot of them are like similar in similar age to us, you know, like on the, on the younger side, 25 to 35, like, what would you say to those to those folks who are like freshly getting out of med school and and starting the residency or like you know the ones that haven't become jaded the ones that haven't that haven't sort of like become desensitized to the the environment that they're going to inevitably be spending so many hours in um like, what is the what is one of the things that you you wish you could say to all of them that really sticks?
2: I'd say be kinder than you think is even necessary. I'd say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also say, and this is something that you do so well on your show, is the listening to patient stories, like to see people as human beings. To you know, I talk to med students. And I brought, Aaron came in once and did a speech. He spoke about having Down syndrome to a bunch of med students. And it Mm -hmm. was interesting to watch them because some of them were kind of like a bit horrified. Like they, I could tell in their faces, they'd never met anybody who was disabled before or had Down syndrome. Um, But then there were other ones who afterwards really tried to connect with him. So uh, we live in Vancouver now, but we used to live in Edmonton. And so he was wearing Edmonton Oilers like Mm t-shirt. And so a few of them came up to him afterwards and like high fived him and fist bump and, and said, you know, kind of gave him a hard time about his t-shirt and (laughs) like really just Mm -hmm. like connected with him as a human being. And I, I can't understate how important that part of healthcare is. And that in fact, there's tons of research that says that connection and feeling seen. There's this book called compassionomics and they, they, put together a big lit search and stuff. They said it takes about 30 seconds. That's how long it takes to connect mm. with another person. And so I would suggest that the whole, if I was in charge, I'm waiting for the call, right? So that I can be in charge of healthcare mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Canada, but it hasn't happened yet. I'd say that you need to make more space, safe spaces like you provide for your, you know, the folks that are on your show, Uh, For patients to share their stories and actually for health professionals to do that, too. You know, Mm -hmm. they need to do that for themselves as well. And I think that's the biggest thing that's missing is the space for that including giving feedback right if something's gone wrong feeling safe enough to speak up and that's a patient safety thing right and i just think that we're we we are missing that that we're seeing people only as numbers and data even the way they talk about the pandemic like cases and deaths no those are people sick with covid and people who have died of covid and this depersonalization is not doing any of us any favors. Like we have to get back to that personal connection. And, and dare I say the love part of healthcare, I think Mm. we're losing, we're losing it. And it, it, it's very disheartening to me.
1: Um, Sue, I, I just have uh, I have one more question for you. Um, I'm curious to know. um, So you are, you've, you've just, you've just had your baby, Aaron's born and, and you, you have been given the diagnosis that he has Down syndrome and you're given this pamphlet and yeah, the pamphlet has like, Hey, these are some things that, that, you know, might be challenging or might be different about, um, about having a, a baby with Down syndrome. What are, what are the what are a few of the uh, what are a few bullet points that are missing from that pamphlet that tell a parent that that you would like to see on a pamphlet that's given out that says, you know, like here are the like three most like positive beautiful things about about the like potential and um you know, humanity of your baby.
2: I'd like the pamphlet to say, (laughs) uh, congratulations, you had a baby, not, I'm sorry, this is a tragedy. Mm. I think often the joy of a baby being born, who's sick with for any reason, right? You know, gets taken out of the delivery room and how painful that is to families like you talked to someone who's got a kid who's 40 and they still remember that day like it's a really traumatic day. So I think congratulations and I think like like you do sharing stories of families about what life is really like to have a kid with down syndrome which isn't the statistics about heart and you know heart conditions and and all the bad things that can happen like why not provide a balanced view You know, not that kids with Down syndrome are happy all the time. I don't know where the hell that came from. That's like not true. (laughs) But Down syndrome, you know, Aaron's got the whole gamut of emotions, right? He's not, you know, just happy all the time, but just the reality of it. And I think the connection with other families who've had that lived experience, I don't know how you get that onto a pamphlet, but that to me is the most important thing so that you can swap stories together and maybe meet families who have kids a little bit older, and have a little glimpse into what life could be, not what it's not going to be, which is really what the medical system mm. uh, says to us. So I, I, that's what I would, if I had a magic wand, that that's what I would say. And for the health professionals, look at their own values and say, what do I, especially for intellectual disability, like these people are smart, you know, physicians. The smartness is really important. Making a lot of money is important to them. Like, you know, you think about their own intrinsic values and what do they think about people who have lower IQs, right? Mm-hmm. And how really maybe they need to do some thought about what that, you know, their own intrinsic values and how that's being manifested in the way that they talk to families. I, I think being as value neutral as possible is is really important.
1: Mm. QR codes. That's how you get that into a pamphlet. And that's a lot. That's a big <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, Sue Robbins, family uh, stories here. Yeah, Sue Robbins, Scandic patient Yorker. advocate, author of "Bird's Eye View: A Life Lived in Healthcare." Um, again, so so glad that we got an opportunity to sit down and and chat with you on the podcast, uh, and and let just let our listeners know you're pretty active uh, on the Twitter sphere. Let our listeners know how they can sort of stay up to date with. Uh, with the important advocacy messaging that you're you're constantly putting out there
2: sure I'm um, well my website's my kind of main landing spot so it's suerobbins.com uh, but it's robbins like the bird which is why my book is called bird's eye view so it just has one b at r-o-b-i-n-s and on twitter who i have a love hate relationship with i'm at sue robbins uh, yvr just the Vancouver, last part of it. So Sue Rums YVR, and I'm also on Instagram, and Instagram's fun. I find that like mm-hmm. posting pictures and stuff is way more fun than Twitter. <laughs> uh, and I, it's at Bird's Eye View Book. That's my Instagram account.
3: Sue, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and chat with us today. Thank you. All right, there we have it. That was our recording with our friend.
1: Sue, Sue Robbins.
3: Yep. Thanks for thanks for filling in the last name there.
1: Uh you're welcome. That's what I'm here for. Um and I I, I really I, I really do I really did love talking with Sue and um and like we said we we met Sue on a nice little um on a nice little um event that we did on Clubhouse with some with some great folks talking about resiliency and in uh, in healthcare in Canada, not and, true though. We met Sue at a oh, that's conference. Right. Oh, that's right. We are, sorry. No, right. It's, that's what we said in the show that we met Sue at several yep. different places, and yeah, we, we can't remember. Yeah, we met Sue all over Canada, and we have been with Sue. We we tour with Sue. Yeah, so the uh,
3: so, uh, the Sioux Tour is coming up again, uh, twenty it's twenty. It's the Sioux 2
1: Tour. It's the Sioux, Sioux, Sioux two, 2 Tour. tour. Su 2 Tour.
3: That's right. Of Canada. And uh, we can't wait to bring that tour to you, but uh, we're, you're going to have to wait for the yeah. information on that until, uh, until we actually have a conversation with our manager and now get that set up because we said it. So mm-hmm. uh, folks, we appreciate each and every one of you and we would appreciate you more if you... Press the follow button, or the uh, the like button, or whatever button mm. exists in the platform right. that you're using. Review and subscribe, right? Review, subscribe, as uh, someone once someone once said, "Daddy Kev" to us. And, uh, and we would love that. And also, uh, you can listen to us wherever you find fine podcasts like the CBC Listen
1: app or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever the fuck. And if you have any fun feedback um, that's uh, either funny, highly critical, um, or a learning opportunity for us, uh, or just some fun fan mail. Keep the boring shit to yourself. Keep the boring shit to yourself. But everything else, you can send to letters at sickboypodcast.com. And uh, maybe with your permission, we will share that on the show and read it to all of our sweet potato fans. And, and if you so, and maybe without your oh, permission and dox you while we're at it. Right. Yeah. We might give out your so uh, address including your puzzle code. Uh, right. And if you want to be on the show as a guest, you can go to sickboypodcast.com/slash contact. Fill out the form, and maybe you will be one of our sweet, 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 sweet guests.
3: Sick Boy Podcast is brought to you by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, Lauren Sankey. Our manager is Jeffrey Lonis. Uh, Sound design by the lovely, beautiful, handsome Donovan, the Meerkat Morgan. The theme music for this week's episode is brought to you by Take Part, just like every Monday episode. And uh, that is it for this week. My name is Jeremy. My name is Taylor. And this is Sick Boy. Brian's not here.